Chapter 1 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867 to 1923. Chapter 1 On the Psychology and Pathology of So-Called Occult Phenomena. In that wide field of psychopathic deficiency, where science has demarcated the diseases of epilepsy, hysteria, and neurasthenia, we meet scattered observations concerning certain rare states of consciousness as to whose meaning authors are not yet agreed. These observations spring up sporadically in the literature on narcolepsy, lethargy, automatisma ambulatore, periodic amnesia, double consciousness, somnambulism, pathological dreamy states, pathological lying, etc. These states are sometimes attributed to epilepsy, sometimes to hysteria, sometimes to exhaustion of the nervous system or neurasthenia, sometimes they are allowed all the dignity of a disease sui generis. Patients occasionally work through a whole graduated scale of diagnoses, from epilepsy through hysteria up to simulation. In practice, on the one hand, these conditions can only be separated with great difficulty from the so-called neuroses, sometimes even are indistinguishable from them. On the other, certain features in the region of pathological deficiency present more than a mere analogical relationship, not only with phenomena of normal psychology, but also with a psychology of the supernormal, of genius. Various as are the individual phenomena in this region, there is certainly no case that cannot be connected by some intermediate example with other typical cases. This relationship in the pictures presented by hysteria and epilepsy is very close. Recently, the view has even been maintained that there is no clean-cut frontier between epilepsy and hysteria, and that a difference is only to be noted in extreme cases. Steffens says, for example, quote, we are forced to the conclusion that in essence hysteria and epilepsy are not fundamentally different, that the cause of the disease is the same, but is manifest in a diverse form, in different intensity and permanence. End quote. The demarcation of hysteria and certain borderline cases of epilepsy from congenital and acquired psychopathic mental deficiency likewise presents the greatest difficulties. The symptoms of one or the other disease everywhere invade the neighboring realm, so violence is done to the facts when they are split off and considered as belonging to one or other realm. The demarcation of psychopathic mental deficiency from the normal is an absolutely impossible task. The difference is everywhere only more or less. The classification in the region of mental deficiency itself is confronted by the same difficulty. At best, certain classes can be separated off, which crystallize round some well-marked nucleus through having peculiarly typical features. Turning away from the two large groups of intellectual and emotional deficiency, there remain these deficiency colored preeminently by hysteria or epilepsy, eleptoid, or neurasthenia, which are not notably deficiency of the intellect or of feeling. It is essentially in this region, insusceptible of any absolute classification, that the above-named conditions play their part. As is well known, they can appear as part manifestations of a typical epilepsy or hysteria, or can exist separately in the realm of psychopathic mental deficiency, 
where their qualifications of epileptic or hysterical are often due to the non-essential accessory features. It is thus the rule to place somnambulism among hysterical diseases, because it is occasionally a phenomenon of severe hysteria, or because mild so-called hysterical symptoms may accompany it. Binet says, There is no somnambulism, a nervous state that is always the same. There are somnambulisms. As one of the manifestations of a severe hysteria, somnambulism is not an unknown phenomenon, but as a pathological entity, as a disease sui generis, it must be somewhat rare to judge by its infrequency in German literature on the subject. So-called spontaneous somnambulism, resting upon a foundation of hysterically tinged psychopathic deficiency, is not a very common occurrence, and it is worthwhile to devote closer study to these cases, for they occasionally present a mass of interesting particulars. Case of Miss Elise K., aged 40, single, bookkeeper in a large business, no hereditary taint, except that it is alleged a brother became slightly nervous after family misfortune and illness, well-educated, of a cheerful, joyous nature, not of a saving disposition, always occupied with some big idea. She was very kind-hearted and gentle, did a great deal both for her parents, who were living in very modest circumstances, and for strangers. Nevertheless, she was not happy, because she thought she did not understand herself. She had always enjoyed good health till a few years ago, when she is said to have been treated for dilation of the stomach and tapeworm. During this illness, her hair became rapidly white. Later, she had typhoid fever. An engagement was terminated by the death of her fiancé from paralysis. She had been very nervous for a year and a half. In the summer of 1897, she went away for change of air and treatment by hydropathy. She herself says that for about a year she has had moments during work when her thoughts seem to stand still, but she does not fall asleep. Nevertheless, she makes no mistakes in the accounts at such times. She has often been to the wrong street and then suddenly noticed that she was not in the right place. She has had no giddiness or attacks of fainting. Formerly, menstruation occurred regularly, every four weeks, and without any pain. But since she has been nervous and overworked, it has come every 14 days. For a long time, she has suffered from constant headache. As accountant and bookkeeper in a large establishment, the patient has had very strenuous work, which she performs well and conscientiously. In addition to the strenuous character of her work, in the last year she had various new worries. Her brother was suddenly divorced. In addition to her own work, she looked after his housekeeping, nursed him and his child in a serious illness, and so on. To recuperate, she took a journey on the 13th of September to see a woman friend in South Germany. A great joy at seeing her friend from whom she had been long separated and her participation in some festivities deprived her of her rest. On the 15th, she and her friend drank half a bottle of claret. This was contrary to her usual habit. They then went for a walk in a cemetery where she began to tear up flowers and to scratch at the graves. She remembered absolutely nothing of this afterwards. On the 16th, she remained with her friend without anything of importance happening. On the 17th, her friend brought her to Zurich. An acquaintance came with her to the asylum. On the way, she spoke quite sensibly, but was very tired. Outside the asylum, they met three boys, whom she described as the three dead people she had dug up. She then wanted to go to the neighboring cemetery, but was persuaded to come to the asylum. She is small, delicately formed, slightly anemic, the heart is slightly enlarged to the left. There are no murmurs, but some reduplication of the sounds. 
the mitral being markedly accentuated. The liver dullness reaches to the border of the ribs. Patella reflex is somewhat increased, but otherwise no tendon reflexes. There is neither anesthesia, analgesia, nor paralysis. Rough examination of the field of vision with the hands shows no contraction. The patient's hair is very light yellow-white color. On the whole, she looks her age. She gives her history and tells recent events quite clearly, but has no recollection of what took place in the cemetery at sea or outside the asylum. During the night of the 17th to the 18th, she spoke to the attendant and declared she saw the whole room full of dead people, looking like skeletons. She was not at all frightened, but was rather surprised that the attendant did not see them too. Once she ran to the window, but was otherwise quiet. The next morning, while still in bed, she saw skeletons, but not in the afternoon. The following night, at four o'clock, she awoke and heard the dead children in the neighboring cemetery cry out that they had been buried alive. She wanted to go out to dig them up, but allowed herself to be restrained. Next morning, at seven o'clock, she was still delirious, but recalled accurately the events in the cemetery at sea and those on approaching the asylum. She stated that at sea she wanted to dig up the dead children who were calling her. She had only torn up the flowers to free the graves and to be able to get at them. In this state, Professor Bluler explained to her that later on, when in a normal state again, she would remember everything. The patient slept in the morning, afterwards was quite clear, and felt herself relatively well. She did indeed remember the attacks, but maintained a remarkable indifference toward them. The following nights, with the exception of those on the 22nd and 25th of September, she again had slight attacks of delirium when once more she had to deal with the dead. The details of the attacks differed, however. Twice she saw the dead in her bed, but she did not appear to be afraid of them. She got out of bed frequently, however, because she did not want to, quote, inconvenience the dead, end quote. Several times she wanted to leave the room. After a few nights free from attacks, there was a slight one on the 30th of September when she called the dead from the window. During the day, her mind was clear. On the 3rd of October, she saw a whole crowd of skeletons in the drawing room, as she afterwards related, during full consciousness. Although she doubted the reality of the skeletons, she could not convince herself that it was a hallucination. The following night, between 12 and 1 o'clock, the earlier attacks were usually about this time, she was obsessed with the idea of dead people for about 10 minutes. She sat up in bed, stared at a corner and said, well, come, but they're not all there. Come along. Why don't you come? The room is big enough. There's room for all. When all are there, I'll come too. Then she lay down with the words, now they're all there, and fell asleep again. In the morning, she had not the slightest recollection of any of these attacks. Very short attacks occurred in the nights of the 4th, 6th, 9th, 13th, and 15th of October, between 12 and 1 o'clock. The last three occurred during the menstrual period. The attendant spoke to her several times, showed her the lighted street lamps and trees, but she did not react to this conversation. Since then, the attacks have altogether ceased. The patient has complained about a number of troubles which she had had all along. She suffered much from headache the morning after the attacks. She said it was unbearable. Five grains of saccharum lactis promptly alleviated this. Then she complained of pains in both forearms, which she described as if it were tenosynovitis. She regarded the bulging of the muscles in flexion as a swelling and asked to be massaged. 
nothing could be seen objectively, and no attention being paid to it, the trouble disappeared. She complained exceedingly and for a long time about the thickening of a toenail, even after the thickened part had been removed. Sleep was often disturbed. She would not give her consent to be hypnotized for the night attacks. Finally, on account of headache and disturbed sleep, she agreed to hypnotic treatment. She proved a good subject, and at the first sitting fell into a deep sleep with analgesia and amnesia. In November, she was again asked whether she could now remember the attack on the 19th of September, which it had been suggested that she would recall. It gave her great trouble to recollect it, and in the end she could only state the chief facts. She had forgotten the details. It should be added that the patient was not superstitious, and in her healthy days had never particularly interested herself in the supernatural. During the whole course of treatment, which ended on the 14th of November, great indifference was evinced both to the illness and the cure. Next spring, the patient returned for outpatient treatment of the headache, which had come back during the very hard work of these months. Apart from this symptom, her condition left nothing to be desired. It was demonstrated that she had no remembrance of the attacks of the previous autumn, not even those of the 19th of September and earlier. On the other hand, in hypnosis, she could recount the proceedings in the cemetery and during the nightly disturbances. By the peculiar hallucination, and by its appearance, our case recalls the conditions which von Kraft Ebbing has described as protracted states of hysterical delirium. He says, Such conditions of delirium occur in the slighter cases of hysteria. Protracted hysterical delirium is built upon a foundation of temporary exhaustion. Excitement seems to determine an outbreak, and it readily recurs. Most frequently, there is persecution delirium with very violent anxiety, sometimes of a religious or erotic character. Hallucinations of all the senses are not rare, but illusions of sight, smell, and feeling are the commonest and most important. The visual hallucinations are especially visions of animals, pictures of corpses, fantastic processions in which dead persons, devils, and ghosts swarm. The illusions of hearing are simply sounds, shrieks, howlings, claps of thunder, or local hallucinations, frequently with sexual content. This patient's visions of corpses, occurring almost always in attacks, recall the states occasionally seen in hysteroepilepsy. There likewise occur specific visions which, in contrast with protracted delirium, are connected with single attacks. 1. A lady, 30 years of age, with grand hysteria, had twilight states in which, as a rule, she was troubled by terrible hallucinations. She saw her children carried away from her, wild beasts eating them up, and so on. She has amnesia for the content of the individual attacks. 2. A girl of 17, likewise a semi-hysteric, saw in her attacks the corpse of her dead mother approaching her to draw her to her. Patient has amnesia for the attacks. These are cases of severe hysteria wherein consciousness rests upon a profound stage of dreaming. The nature of the attack and the stability of the hallucination alone show a certain kinship with our case, which in this respect has numerous analogies with the corresponding states of hysteria. For instance, with those cases where a psychical shock, rape, and so forth, was the occasion for the outbreak of hysterical attacks, and where at times the original incident is lived over again, stereotyped in the hallucination. But our case gets its specific mold from the identity of the consciousness in the different attacks. It is an etat second, with its own memory, and separated from the waking state by complete amnesia. 
This differentiates it from the above-mentioned twilight states and links it to the so-called somnambulic conditions. Charcot divides the somnambulic states into two chief classes. One, delirium with well-marked incoordination of representation and action. Two, delirium with coordinated action. This approaches the waking state. Our case belongs to the latter class. If by somnambulism be understood a state of systemized partial waking, any critical review of this affection must take account of those exceptional cases of recurrent amnesias which have been observed now and again. These, apart from nocturnal embolism, are the simplest conditions of systematized partial waking. Naif's case is certainly the most remarkable in the literature. It deals with a gentleman of 32, with a very bad family history, presenting numerous signs of degeneration, partly functional, partly organic. In consequence of overwork at the age of 17, he had a peculiar twilight state with delusions, which lasted some days and was cured with a sudden recovery of memory. Later, he was subject to frequent attacks of giddiness and palpitation of the heart and vomiting, but these attacks were never attended by loss of consciousness. At the termination of some feverish illness, he suddenly traveled from Australia to Zurich, where he lived for some weeks in careless cheerfulness and only came to himself when he read in the paper of his sudden disappearance from Australia. He had a total and retrograde amnesia for several months, which included the journey to Australia, his sojourn there, and the return journey. Asim has published a case of periodic amnesia. Albert X, twelve and a half years old, of hysterical disposition, was several times attacked in the course of a few years by conditions of amnesia in which he forgot reading, writing, and arithmetic, even at times his own language, for several weeks at a stretch. The intervals were normal. Proust has published a case of automatisma ambulatore, with pronounced hysteria, which differs from Naif's in the repeated occurrence of the attacks. An educated man, 30 years old, exhibits all the signs of grand hysteria. He is very suggestible, has, from time to time, under the influence of excitement, attacks of amnesia which last from two days to several weeks. During these states, he wanders about, visits relatives, destroys various objects, incurs debts, and has even been convicted of picking pockets. Boileau describes a similar case of wandering impulse. A widow of 22, highly hysterical, became terrified at the prospect of a necessary operation for salpingitis. She left the hospital and fell into a state of somnambulism, from which she awoke three days later with total amnesia. During these three days, she had traveled a distance of about 60 kilometers to fetch her child. William James has described a case of an ambulatory sort. The Reverend Anne Selborne, an itinerant preacher, 30 years of age, psychopathic, had, on a few occasions, attacks of loss of consciousness lasting one hour. One day, January 17, 1887, he suddenly disappeared from Green after having taken $551 out of the bank. He remained hidden for two months. During this time, he had taken a little shop under the name of H.J. Brown in Norriston, Pennsylvania, and had carefully attended to all purchases, although he had never done this sort of work before. On March 14, 1887, he suddenly awoke and went back home and had complete amnesia for the interval. Mesnay publishes the following case. F., 27 years old, sergeant in the African regiment, was wounded in the parietal bone at Baziel's, suffered for a year from hemiplegia, which disappeared when the wound healed. 
During the course of his illness, the patient had attacks of somnambulism with marked limitation of consciousness. All the senses were paralyzed, with the exception of taste and a small portion of the visual sense. The movements were coordinated, but obstacles in the way of their performance were overcome with difficulty. During the attacks, he had an absurd collecting mania. By various manipulations, one could demonstrate a hallucinatory content in his consciousness. For instance, when a stick was put in his hand, he would feel himself transported to a battle scene, would place himself on guard, see the enemy approaching, and so forth. Guinon and Sophie Watik made the following experiments on hysterics. A blue glass was held in front of the eyes of a female patient during a hysterical attack. She regularly saw the picture of her mother in the blue sky. A red glass showed her a bleeding wound, a yellow one an orange seller or a lady with a yellow dress. Mesnay's case reminds one of the cases of occasional attacks of shrinkage of memory. McNish communicates a similar case. An apparently healthy young lady suddenly fell into an abnormally long and deep sleep. It is said without prodromial symptoms. On awakening, she had forgotten the words for and knowledge of the simplest things. She had again to learn to read, write, and count. Her progress was rapid in this relearning. After a second attack, she again woke in her normal state, but without recollection of the period when she had forgotten things. These states alternated for more than four years, during which consciousness showed continuity within the two states, but was separated by an amnesia from the consciousness of the normal state. These selected cases of various forms of changes of consciousness all throw a certain light upon our case. Naif's case presents two hysteriaform eclipses of memory, one which is marked by the appearance of delusions, and the other by its long duration, contraction of the field of consciousness, and desire to wander. The peculiar associated impulses are especially clear in the cases of Proust and Mesnay. In our case, the impulsive tearing up of the flowers, the digging up of the graves, form a parallel. The continuity of consciousness which the patient presents in the individual attacks recalls the behavior of the consciousness in McNish's case. Hence, our case may be regarded as a transient phenomenon of alternating consciousness. The dreamlike hallucinatory content of the limited consciousness in our case does not, however, justify an unqualified assignment to this group of double consciousness. The hallucinations in the second state show a certain creativeness which seems to be conditioned by the autosuggestibility of this state. In Mesnay's case, we noticed the appearance of hallucinatory processes from simple stimulation of touch. The patient's subconsciousness employs simple perceptions for the automatic construction of complicated scenes which then take possession of the limited consciousness. A somewhat similar view must be taken about our patient's hallucinations, at least the external conditions which gave rise to the appearance of the hallucinations seem to strengthen our supposition. The walk in the cemetery induces the vision of the skeletons. The meeting with the three boys arouses the hallucination of children buried alive whose voices the patient hears at nighttime. She arrived at the cemetery in a somnambulic state, which on this occasion was specially intense in consequence of her having taken alcohol. She performed actions almost instinctively about which her subconsciousness nevertheless did receive certain impressions. The part played here by alcohol must not be underestimated. We know from experience that it does not only act adversely upon these conditions, but, like every other narcotic, it gives rise to a certain increase of suggestibility. The impressions received in somnambulism subconsciously form independent growths and finally reach perception as hallucinations. 
Thus, our case closely corresponds to those somnambulic dream states which have recently been subjected to a penetrating study in England and France. These lapses of memory, which at first seem without content, gain a content by means of accidental autosuggestion, and this content builds itself up automatically to a certain extent. It achieves no further development, probably on account of the improvement now beginning, and finally it disappears altogether as recovery sets in. Binet and Ferre have made numerous experiments on the implanting of suggestions in states of partial sleep. They have shown, for example, that when a pencil is put in the anesthetic hand of a hysteric, letters of great length are written automatically whose contents are unknown to the patient's consciousness. Cutaneous stimuli in anesthetic regions are sometimes perceived as visual images, or at least as vivid associated visual presentations. These independent transmutations of simple stimuli must be regarded as primary phenomena in the formation of the somnambulic dream pictures. Analogous manifestations occur in exceptional cases within the sphere of waking consciousness. Goethe, for example, states that when he sat down, lowered his head, and vividly conjured up the image of a flower, he saw it undergoing changes of its own accord, as if entering into new combinations. In half-waking states, these manifestations are relatively frequent in the so-called hypnagogic hallucinations. The automatisms which the Goethe example illustrates are differentiated from the truly somnambulic inasmuch as the primary presentation is a conscious one in this case. The further development of the automism is maintained within the definite limits of the original presentation, that is, within the purely motor or visual region. If the primary presentation disappears, or if it is never conscious at all, and if the automatic development overlaps neighboring regions, we lose every possibility of a demarcation between waking automatisms and those of the somnambulic state. This will occur, for instance, if the presentation of a hand plucking the flower gets joined to the perception of the flower or the presentation of the smell of the flower. We can then only differentiate it by the more or less. In one case, we then speak of the waking hallucinations of the normal, in the other, of the dream vision of the somnambulists. The interpretation of our patient's attacks as hysterical becomes more certain by the demonstration of a probably psychogenic origin of the hallucination. This is confirmed by her troubles, headache, and tenosynovitis, which have shown themselves amenable to suggestive treatment. The etiological factor alone is not sufficient for the diagnosis of hysteria. It might really be expected a priori that in the course of a disease which is so suitably treated by rest, as in the treatment of an exhaustion state, features would be observed here and there which could be interpreted as manifestations of exhaustion. The question arises whether the early lapses and later somnambulic attacks could not be conceived as states of exhaustion, so-called neurasthenic crises. We know that in the realm of psychopathic mental deficiency, there can arise the most diverse aleptoid accidents whose classification under epilepsy or hysteria is at least doubtful. To quote Carl Westphal, On the basis of numerous observations, I maintain that the so-called aleptoid attacks form one of the most universal and commonest symptoms in the group of diseases which we reckon among the mental diseases and neuropathies. The mere appearance of one or more epileptic or aleptoid attacks is not decisive for its course and prognosis. As mentioned, I have used the concept of aleptoid in the widest possible sense for the attack itself. 
The eleptoid moments of our case are not far to seek. The objection can, however, be raised that the coloring of the whole picture is hysterical in the extreme. Against this, however, it must be stated that every somnambulism is not eo ipsu hysterical. Occasionally, states occur in typical epilepsy which, to experts, seem parallel with somnambulic states, or which can only be distinguished by the existence of genuine convulsions. As Deal shows, in neurasthenic mental deficiency, crises also occur, which often confuse the diagnosis. A definite presentation content can even create a stereotyped repetition in the individual crisis. Lately, Morshin has published a case of a leptoid neurasthenic twilight state. I am indebted to Professor Bluler for the report of the following case. An educated gentleman of middle age, without epileptic antecedents, had exhausted himself by many years of overstrenuous mental work. Without other prodromal symptoms, such as depression and so forth, he attempted suicide during a holiday. In a peculiar twilight state, he suddenly threw himself into the water from a bank, in sight of many persons. He was at once pulled out, and retained but a fleeting remembrance of the occurrence. Bearing these observations in mind, neurasthenia must be allowed to account for a considerable share in the attacks of our patient, Miss E.K., the headaches and tenosynovitis point to the existence of a relatively mild hysteria, generally latent, but becoming manifest under the influence of exhaustion. The genesis of this particular illness explains the relationship which has been described between epilepsy, hysteria, and neurasthenia. Summary. Miss Elise K. is a psychopathic defective with a tendency to hysteria. Under the influence of nervous exhaustion, she suffers from attacks of eleptoid giddiness whose interpretation is uncertain at first sight. Under the influence of an unusually large dose of alcohol, the attacks develop into definite somnambulism with hallucinations, which are limited, in the same way as dreams, to accidental external perceptions. When the nervous exhaustion is cured, the hysterical manifestations disappear. In the region of psychopathic deficiency with hysterical coloring, we encounter numerous phenomena which show, as in this case, symptoms of diverse defined diseases, which cannot be attributed with certainty to any one of them. These phenomena are partially recognized to be independent. For instance, pathological lying, pathological reveries, etc. Many of these states, however, still await thorough scientific investigation. At present, they belong more or less to the domain of scientific gossip. Persons with habitual hallucinations, and also the inspired, exhibit these states. They draw the attention of the crowd to themselves, now as a poet or artist, now as savior, prophet, or founder of a new sect. The genesis of the particular frame of mind of these persons is, for the most part, lost in obscurity, for it is only very rarely that one of these remarkable personalities can be subjected to exact observation. In view of the often great historical importance of these persons, it is much to be wished that we had some scientific material which would enable us to gain a closer insight into the psychological development of their peculiarities. Apart from the now practically useless productions of the pneumatological school at the beginning of the 19th century, German scientific literature is very poor in this respect. Indeed, there seems to be a real aversion from the investigation in this field. For the facts so far gathered, we are indebted almost exclusively to the labors of French and English workers. It seems at least desirable that our literature should be enlarged in this respect. These considerations have induced me to publish some observations which will perhaps help to further our knowledge concerning the relationship of hysterical twilight states and enlarge the problems of normal psychology. 
End of section one of chapter one. Recording by Olivia.